Church family, it's good to see you here this morning. It's March, and if you're not aware, next week is National Low Attendance Church Day. Not because it should be, but because next week is not only the start of spring break, it's also daylight savings time, which means we jump ahead an hour. So just remember that because God wants you to be in church. But we're glad you're here this morning. Hey, we are, we are arriving this morning at a place we started months ago. We are actually going to finish out the book of James this morning. We've got two verses to go. James is going to bring us to a, a fitting, though some would say somewhat abrupt ending. And, and what he's going, uh, what, the, what the Spirit has prompted him to write and direct to us this morning was made very evident in my life many years ago as a youth pastor. And I think I have shared a little bit of the story before, but when I was a youth pastor, we would take our high school students to camp out at Glorieta, New Mexico. Out there, if you've ever been at Glorieta, the the camp itself is in in this uh, valley surrounded by mountains at at the base camp here, about 6,500 foot elevation. And there is a hiking trail to Mount Baldy which is uh, one of the peaks there. It's over 10,000 feet. There's a little, you can see it from the camp. This, uh, there's a little old tire, uh, fire lookout tower. And so the second year we took students there, I decided the first year we did a, me and about 10 students, we did a hike. Most students weren't interested in hiking. So the next year I thought, oh, most probably won't be interested in this. There'll be a couple who want to. We'll hike to Mount Baldy. It's five miles there. It'll take most of our free day, but we can do it. It'll be easy. Not easy, but it, you know, it's simple, straightforward. Well, I, I tried to terrify every student out of going. <laughs> and, and not with like, ooh, this is a challenge, can you? But like really, if you, if you can't walk a mile without breathing hard, you're not allowed to go on the hike. So I was shocked when out of 60 some odd students, 44 went on the hike with me that day. And we set, set, we set out to go on this hike and, and we're following these initial signs that point you to the trailhead. And, and there was one that was a little bit confusing, but we thought we followed it right and we keep going. Now I'd done my research. I knew there's actually two trails up there. There's the direct trail you want to take and there's the long trail you don't want to take. And sure enough, we missed the direct trail, but we were on the long trail. And so what should have been maybe a 10 mile round uh, trip hike ended up being about a 17 mile round trip hike. What started as very simple ended up with students who, uh, some of whom became very uh, dehydrated, adult leaders whose knees locked out and were having to walk about a half a mile an hour in a, in a hike that started with wonderful intentions at about 10.45 that morning, ended when I was the last person off the trailhead at about 9.30 that night. Now, this subsequently, this hike became legend and lore in the history of the youth group, and uh, it became this and that. But here's the simple point. I can't tell you how badly I wish there had been somebody who knew the trail who said, stop, turn around, you're looking for that trail. It would have saved so many problems, and half the gray hairs on my head, the few that there are, they wouldn't be there. Because that was one, I've never prayed harder as a pastor on any journey than trying to get those students off that trail as we were walking down. And that is precisely what James brings us to. So if you turn with me to the book of James, James chapter 5, 
We're going to pick up in verse 19, James 5, 19. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to use the Pew Bible. You can see the page on the screen behind me. Here's what James says. He says, my brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So here's James having written this whole letter where his primary concern is for a church who's facing real hardship, who's experiencing real suffering in unjust ways, who also are living in a world filled with real temptation that will only be heightened by the hardship they're facing. And he writes them this letter, very practical, very direct. Here's what it looks like to suffer well. Here's what it looks like to walk with the Lord well. Here's, here's things to watch out for. Here's what a godly mouth sounds like versus an ungodly mouth. And he takes us through all of this and he gets to the end and he tells us that as a community, we must live confessing our sin to one another and praying for one another. And out of that, he says, here's the reality. He says, church family, here's the reality. If anyone among you strays from the truth. He says, if anyone among you, meaning those of us in this room who are gathered in theory, we're gathered here this morning because you have had a response to Jesus Christ or you've placed personal faith in who he is and what he's done. You have come to faith in Christ, been saved by grace through faith. And if that is you, then you are a Christian and you are part of the local church, the body of Christ. And here you are today. And we exist as a local family, just like this church James is writing to. And he says, here's the reality. If anyone among you, if any one of you who is a believer strays, wanders, it's a word that means to walk around with, without a sense of proper direction, to wander aimlessly. It can be used in a passive sense, meaning someone has deceived you and enticed you off the correct path. Or it can be used uh, in, in what's a middle sense or an active that you yourself have enticed yourself. You have strayed. You have wandered from the correct path. It says, if anyone among you wanders, if anyone strays, whether it be intentional or unintentional, whether it be a small step off the path or a giant leap off the path, if anyone strays from what path? From the truth. Now catch that, church family. He doesn't say if anyone strays from a truth. He doesn't say if anyone strays from their truth. It's very deliberate. There is an article there. If anyone strays from the truth, meaning there is something which is true objectively and does not depend upon any one of us. It doesn't matter what we think about it or how we feel about it. Our thoughts and our feelings don't change the fact that it is absolutely true. Amen. And we know according to scripture that the truth is not just some set of maybe take you back to your geometry days, theorems and postulates and just facts to memorize. But the truth is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. The truth is a person. The truth is objective. To be a person means to stray from the truth, to wander from the truth, means to take steps where you depart from walking in a way that is like 
his character. To stray from the truth means we walk in ways that are opposed to his character. We walk in ways that are opposed to who he is. We walk in ways that are opposed to his reality, to his order, to his design. But the truth here, the truth is certainly a person, Jesus Christ. The truth then because the truth is objectively God himself, the truth also means it's beliefs we believe, facts, truths, realities we hold to that we plant our life on. But the truth is not just facts we believe. The truth according to Scripture is always a lifestyle we live. It's things we believe that inform how we act, live, move, and breathe. So what James says here when he says, if anyone among you strays from the truth, he's pointing to a reality. There is a reality that for those of us in Christ, none of us are above wandering, and at times there will be some of us in our church family that wander, that wander from the truth, that wander from that path which is firmly rooted in sound and correct doctrine and what the Lord says is true versus not true. That path which is marked by a lifestyle consistent with the Lord and His character, there will be times where some among us will wander and stray from that path. How? Well, it may be intentional. It may be that we go after, James has mentioned, temptation. You're you're pulled away by these desires that you're not owning in your heart that are wrong. You're pulled away. It may be we pull ourselves away following those temptations. It could be we're, we're flipping through Instagram and we catch somebody's reel. The students will know what I'm talking about. We'll catch somebody's video where they're saying, hey, did you know that God really is okay with fill in the blank? Let me tell you why. And we begin to be deceived and enticed away by people twisting truth. There's a lot of different ways. It can be we take one giant leap. We know this is wrong, but we don't care. We're going to do it anyway. It can be a small step. Well, I didn't necessarily completely lie, but I didn't tell the entire truth. Small step. Well, I mean, it would really look bad if I said that that, that maybe I messed the details up. Small step, small step. You know what, church family? It doesn't matter if I take a giant step or if I take a bunch of small steps, both are going to cause me to fall off the stage eventually. We wander in, in a variety of ways. We believe that we can have Jesus, but we can also have our sin too. Now, we want to be clear today. The reality is inside of our church, there will be people who wander. And the passage today is not to vilify the wanderer, but it is to acknowledge that it happens. We wander into truth, facts, things, twistings of Scripture. We wander into things and are deceived by things for different reasons in different ways at different times. And simply put, James leaves it general because he wants to establish the reality that it is possible for us to wander from the truth, not to leave the truth. We're not somehow falling out of salvation. That can't happen. No, but we're wandering from the path that Jesus has clearly marked for us to follow him. Now, because that's a reality, look what he says to do. He says, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back. He says there's something, here's the other truth, that if, if the reality is some can wander, then the other reality must be, the truth must be that we as a church family go after those who wander. And that word turn back is literally the idea of someone who's walked off onto this trail 
and you stop them, turn them back to the correct trail, but the emphasis isn't just on being back on this trail, it's on the fact that they are on, it's, it's the object of who they're following. You've pulled them off of a path where they're following deception and we've turned them back to a path where they are following Christ. It says, if anyone turns him back, and this is what he says, let him, let him know, let that person know. Be, be assured of, recognize, be confident of this. Be confident of what? Let him know that the one who turns a sinner from the error of his way, so the one who sees a brother or sister who are wandering for whatever reason, intentional or unintentional, major or minor, whatever reason, they see a brother or sister wandering and they step up to the plate, they act in that person's life in a way that fits accordingly and they seek to turn that person back to walking rightly with the Lord. Because that person walking on this path of deception is in error, they're in sin according to James. It says the one who turns him back, he says two statements that reveal how unbelievably vital and critical and necessary it is that we be a church family that turns each other back and realize the gravity of what happens if we just let people wander. He says, be assured, know that whoever steps up to the plate to turn them back will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, whose soul's being saved? Well, if you do the digging in there, the the soul that's being saved is not the person who's doing the turning back, they're already walking well. It's the person who's wandered. What does it mean to save their soul from death? You can dig in and find a lot of different answers, but simply put, what's clear is to save the soul from death is when you as a believer wander off of the path that Christ has laid and into whatever deceptive path you've wandered into, when we as believers wander into those paths, our hearts which have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought to the kingdom of light, our hearts which are filled with life are now living in denial of the salvation we've been given. Our lives which have been reconciled to God which now can be lived with satisfaction, with fulfillment, with purpose, we are now walking down a path that is filled with emptiness with vanity, which is filled with not death that we're gonna die and be separated from the Lord for eternity. No, if we're in Christ, that's been taken care of, but, but a kind of death for the heart. In fact, one pastor put it this way, there is no more unhappy person, there is no more miserable person in the world than a Christian who is not living for God. They're gonna be experiencing the grief of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, there's going to be all sorts of things. And not only that, but we know from Scripture that there can be, there are very real consequences to our wanderings into sin that one way or another can lead to physical death. And he's saying when you step up, here's the weight of the gravity. You who step up and see someone wandering and you turn them back, you are saving them from death. Not only that, but as you turn them back, as they are restored into fellowship with God, the forgiveness of their sin which happens at salvation once for all, that forgiveness which covers their sin when they are brought back into fellowship with God, they're brought back into a place where they experience and know 
the forgiveness of God in their life, and they're brought back to a place where we as a local church, if there has been sin they have committed against each of us, where we're able to apply between each other the forgiveness of God. It says that action of turning it back, it, it covers a multitude of sins. It's based on a passage in, in Proverbs, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgression. When we turn someone back, rather than their sin remaining, it's they experience its forgiveness. Rather than, than their sin and deception continuing to stir up strife and, and be a small dose of leaven that unleavens the whole bread, instead that sin is exposed and buried and, and put to death. Rather than broken fellowship, the person is restored. Why? Because God forgives sin. And understand, when we say that it covers sin, the covering of sin here is based on God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness is not a sweeping of wrong under the rug. That's not what it is. God did not take our sin and sweep it under the rug. No, God took our sin and Jesus paid every last drop of the steep price that it costs to forgive it. There is a sacrifice, there is a blood payment. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Jesus made a sacrifice. He, he placed a blood payment on the cross where he became my sin, your sin, the sin of the whole world, and he drank the, the just and right wrath of God, hell itself, on our behalf. And the reason when you come to faith in Christ, the reason when you recognize the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you are born a sinner out of relationship with God, that Jesus did in fact live and breathe and move. He lived the life you can't. He died the death you deserve. He rose from the grave and he offers in his grace this gift of salvation to reconcile you a sinner made for God but outside of that relationship, he offers a gift to reconcile you, to, to bring you into that relationship as, as a son or daughter adopted. The reason that forgiveness can take place, that forgiveness of sin, that where, where God says, I will, your sin will be as far as the east is from the west, which is an eternal distance. The reason there is that forgiveness is because Christ paid the price. So it says, if one wanders, you who turn him back, you need to know, you need to be assured that if you're really driven by the love of God and love of, love of brother and sister, if you're really driven by that and you seek to turn them out, far from being a bigot or judgmental or anything like that, look at the, the weighty work of gravity you're doing. You are rescuing your brother from a path of death. You are rescuing your brother, bringing, back them, bringing them back into the place where they can know and experience and live in the fullness of the forgiveness God has given them. And where that can be experienced at harmony with the church. See, church family, what James says very clearly is because there is a reality that some, all of us are capable and some of us will wander from the truth, we must be a people who seek to turn wanderers back and restore them in their relationship with God and in their relationship with the church. We must be restorers. Now here's what's interesting, church family. That's all James says. He doesn't say how to do it. He doesn't seem the emphasis in the passage isn't on you 
If there's someone in this room who's wandering, the, the emphasis on the passage isn't calling the wanderer back, though certainly that would be true. The emphasis on the passage is, is a cry to those who are walking well with Christ saying, hey, you need to know, you need to be assured, you must be people who are not apathetic when your brothers and sisters in Christ wander. You must be people who don't grow discouraged. You must be people who seek to turn back the wanderer. And so if we're gonna do that, church family, what we're gonna have to do as we apply this passage is we're gonna have to, to zoom out a little bit and see what the rest of Scripture says. So two ways to we apply this passage. If we're gonna be people who seek to restore those who wanders, two things. One, we have to be driven by a love for God and a love for each other. We have to be driven by a love for God and a love for each other. Listen to how Scripture describes. Hebrews 13 says to those who are pastors that we, we are to watch over the souls of those in the church. Hebrews 10 says that we as a church body, that we don't neglect coming together, but when we come together, we encourage one another. We spur one another on to love and good deeds. First Peter will write in First Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent, passionate in your love for each other because love covers a multitude of sins. Church family, God has called us in Christ Jesus to have a deep love and affection for each other that, that drives us when we see someone wandering, it drives us to act and avoid one of two extremes. Because the reality is there's two extremes that can come with a passage like this. One extreme when you see this passage is to be the person who just delights to be what I call the purity patrol. All right, this is the adult who volunteers every year to go to camp, not because they love teenagers, but because they just wanna find as many rule breakers as possible. This is my friend at camp in seventh grade walking around and taking ice and throwing it at every couple who was PDAing, public display of affection, and saying, no PDA, no PDA, no PDA. One danger whenever you come to passages about confronting sin, turning wanderers back, church discipline, one danger is to go about it in a way where we just delight in being the correction people. And this is a place where abuses happen, and abuses with church discipline do happen in churches. The other extreme, which is probably far more prevalent for most of us, is to be the apathetic coward. It's to be the one who's, hey, I'm, I'm walking well with the Lord. Wow, I really, Bob really seems to be straying. I'm concerned about some of the stuff he's posting. I, I love Bob, but... I just, I, I don't want to risk upsetting. So I don't want to risk being called judgment. I don't want to risk the tranquility of my life to go step in on Bob's behalf and seek to rescue him from a dangerous path he's walking. And instead of being driven by love, we just fall into a sense of apathy. Not one of you in this room, if you ever watched me, I, you see me every, every Sunday, I've got some kind of water jug. If you knew that jug was filled with rat poison, I would hope you loved me enough to say, Pastor, hold it. But that same common sense action to save someone who's about to drink rat poison sometimes falls on apathetic hearts when it comes to those who wander. Now, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4 
tells us this, church family. Ephesians 4 says this, As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up. How do we grow up together? We don't get tossed to and fro. How do we not get tossed to and fro? It means we love each other and in that love we speak the truth. In that love we are driven to go after those who wander, those who stray. We are driven by love by a desire to see God's best for them, by a desire to see them walk in unity with the Lord and unity inside of the local church. And perhaps the reason that James addresses the the command here to those who are walking well and then the command is to know, perhaps it's because in any day, age, and time when someone wanders the path of temptation and gives in to sin and you step up to talk to them. There is always the danger of that person twisting scripture and shouting back and going, stop judging me, you bigot. And that's what makes us, ah, I just don't know if it's worth it. But James says, no. When you seek to turn someone back, you are engaging in a work that is vital, that is necessary, that is major, that is life-saving. And understand, church family, we have got to be a church family that turns people back because we are living in a day and age when the temptation is not just to wander and stray in the morality of people's life. I have, I have, there is so much easy access to very convincing speakers who twist the truth of Scripture just like Satan to create false doctrines that justify the false lifestyle. And they are available for anybody, any one of you, no matter your age, as long as you possess the ability to use any form of social media, listen to a podcast or pull up YouTube and use the internet, you've got the ability to stumble in it with ease. And as we walk and seek to live and move and breathe and follow Jesus in these days, we've got to understand, church family, there are going to be people who wander. The question is, will we be people who go after them? Or will we just go, well, you know, go, go find a place for you. Do we love? We're going to have to be driven by love. But here's the second thing. If we want to be restorers, we're going to have to follow the biblical pattern. Now, if we were to go back through all of the book of James, there's plenty that James says that would guide us, that would help us see and know and understand how we should go about this. One is already right there. If you're going to go about, what's the biblical pattern? If you're going to see someone wandering and seek to go after them, you're going to have to do it prayerfully. He's already said this passage flows directly out of him saying, confess sins to one another, therefore, and pray for one another that you may be healed. When you see someone straying, the first response we ought to have more than anything should, begin to, should be to begin to fall to our knees and pray for them. It should be to pray, to pray that we know and God would give us wisdom and an open door to know how to address it, when to address it, to use the words pray for that person to be sensitive to the grief and conviction of the Holy Spirit and to, to respond to the Spirit's conviction before it gets somewhere even worse. Yet how many times do we see someone struggling in sin, deception, 
yet we fail to ever pray. We take notice of it. We mention it to our friend or our spouse, but do we ever pray? We have to start prayerfully. We have to approach them humbly. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, you hypocrites, you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you won't take out the log in your own eye. And what he means by that is here, here are these people who are delighting at, oh, I see you wandering that path over there. Yes, here I come. Mm, if you delight in confronting people who've strayed, I would highly recommend you get before the Lord and see if there's a plank. It's not a delight. It's a joy to go after and rescue people from deception, yes. But it's not a delight to have to live in a world where you have to confront people who may or may not respond. We need to do it humbly, recognize, is there anything, and as we're praying, is there anything that we need to confess? If I've, if I've watched this person wander into whatever they've wandered, is there anger, is there, is there frustration on my part that I need to confess? We do it humbly, not only humbly as far as dealing with our own sin before the Lord, but humbly in how we approach this person and deal. There should be a kindness to how we seek to turn people back, church family. The reality is there are gonna be people of great maturity who stumble, and there are going to be people, and when I say immaturity, I simply mean who are just young in their faith, who are going to be easily taken captive by, wait a minute, you're telling me here this person pulled out their Bible and they showed me a passage that says what you're saying is sin is okay. We need to deal with people kindly because people are at all different places in their relationship and walk with the Lord. There should be a kindness that flows out of our humility that recognizes, and by the way, not every person who wanders starts off trying to wander. I certainly didn't set out that morning attempting to take the student ministry up, up the wrong trail. But I was immature. I didn't know the right trail fully, and there was no one there to point me in the right direction. We do it kindly. Galatians chapter 6 tells us to do it both cautiously and restoratively. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone among you is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual, meaning you who are walking well, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so you too will not be tempted. As we see people wandering, how do we handle it? Prayerfully, humbly, gently, kindly. And as we see people wandering, we do so cautiously because there's not a one of us who's above falling into someone else's sin. If I see a brother, if I, have, if I have battled with certain levels of alcohol in my life and I see a brother walking down a path of alcoholism, I may be the initial one to stand in and say, hey, we need to turn back, but there's probably gonna be a process of restoration for that brother. And it may not be best for me to be the one because of my own struggles to walk through that with him. It may be better for me to connect him to some other brothers in the church who can walk through that with him who don't have a weakness there. That's what he means by being cautious. But he also says being restorative. Here's the aim. Anytime we see someone wander, the goal is not to go point out and berate them and go look at how wrong you are. The goal is to help them come back to be restored Remember, when you come to faith in Christ, you're seated at the table. You're always seated. Son or daughter, you're there looking God in the eyes. You have fellowship. The aim of restoration is not getting you back to the table. You're still at the table, but rather than looking full in his wondrous face, you're distracted by all the temptation scurrying about on the ground. And the goal of turning someone back is to turn their head back to restore proper fellowship in their life with God and to restore 
fellowship in the local church. We aim to restore. And Jesus lays out how we do this in Matthew 18. We do it personally and we do it directly. He says, if anyone sees a brother in sin, go to that brother and confront them. Talk to them about it. Point it out. And if they repent, you've won your brother back. If they don't repent, step two is for you to grab a few other believers from the church and to, in a small community, go and approach that person. And if they still don't repent, then you're to go as the church. There is a threefold process. The reality is different situations will demand different kind of responses and different levels. Some things will need to be brought to the whole church if someone's unrepentant. Some things just won't be able to be brought. But the reality is this, what Jesus advocates is not an approach where everybody else in the church knows your opinion about this person wandering, but this person's never had anybody step up and say, brother, you're wandering. Where the whole church is running around gossiping, did you see this person strangling? What does that mean? What is this? Meanwhile, this person's just whistling along, chugging down the path of deception with no one bothering to personally go to them and say, hey, brother, can I talk to you? I've been praying for you. And I see this danger in your life. Jesus says, how do we do it? How do we turn someone back? We go to them personally, directly. This was made vividly evident for me years back. I was, years back at, in a prior ministry, had a friend and brother who I loved dearly who was in the ministry that I was serving in. And it, it became apparent that uh, in a matter of fairly great consequence, this brother had, had intentionally misrepresented and, and whether it was, whether he set out to or not, I don't know. That's the Lord's knowledge, but uh, lied about things that I had said or not said. Said I said things I didn't. Said I didn't say things I did. And when I first heard about it, my natural response like any human is to be angry. And I wanted to go talk and I want, and so what I did is I, Lord, I am angry. Some of this I should be angry about, I think, according to your word, because what's done's wrong, but I don't know where that crosses the line to just my own anger. You're going to have to sort that out, Lord. I don't know what to do, but I want to honor you. And as I prayed about it, it became very apparent in my heart that this was something of consequence that I could not just sit back on. This person was serving in my ministry. This person was my brother in Christ. I had a responsibility to go to this person and address it. So I typed a message to this person to say we needed to talk and here was the issue, but I didn't just shoot it off right away. I had a couple other people who weren't feeling the emotion I was read it and make sure that I had done it, written it clearly but respectfully. Sent the email, a brother agreed to meet, but there was gonna be a, a day gap where we saw each other at church. And I knew that I was in line with the Lord when I saw this brother at church and when I saw him, my feeling was not anger. It wasn't disgust. It wasn't fear. It wasn't the desire to go run into a hole. When I saw him across the way, what filled my heart was just sorrow. Sorrow that this was even an issue and sorrow that we were going to have to address this. Grief. Grief like the Holy Spirit's grieved. So I met with this brother 
because of the nature of what it was. In order to be the most prudent, we had a third party who set in, uh, met with, met with uh, used respectful and, and kind tones throughout, throughout, approached, said, here's what, here's what was said, you know this is not this, and, and laid it out. And I would love to tell you that there was perfect restoration that came for that, but there wasn't. Unfortunately, that was as far, given the circumstances and what could happen, that was as far as I could take the issue. But I give that to you as an example. Because there's certainly been times in my life I probably should have gone after a wanderer and failed to in apathy. There's sometimes I've probably gone after a wanderer and, and been a little too jazzed about it. But here was a situation of great consequence where there was clear lying involved. And this was the pattern that was followed. And the desire was not to go, you're wrong, get it right, set it right. The desire was, this is, this is tearing our fellowship apart. And so I'm here talking to you so that there can be restoration. Now, unfortunately, full restoration didn't happen, but I can get before the Lord with peace in my heart that I went after my brother. See, the call here is to go after. You and I can't control the response. Some will respond, some won't. The response is not what determines what we should do, but the love of Christ in us, compelling us with love for one another, calls us to go after those who wander. So today, what's our attitude towards those who stray and wander? Are we apathetic? Are we hostile? Are we grieved in love going after them? Do we criticize and gossip? Do we seek to restore them? Are we prayerful for those we see wandering? See, years later, you say, Wes, you didn't really learn anything from the first time. Years later, we'd go back to camp. But I figured out how to get everybody up and down the mountain without any problems. And you're going to say, well, the problem is you're still getting them up and down the mountain. You should have just stopped it. Uh, well, I had, we, we, we would move in groups. We knew the right trail. We'd move in groups. I'd have leaders over every one of those groups. And so the last year we were there, and I was always the last group off, so I'd make sure to catch anybody who straggled. So we get off, four o'clock in the afternoon's great, and all of a sudden my phone starts lighting up. One of our groups hasn't come back. Terror. Because they're... That hike, you're in, you're, in, you're in the sticks, you're in the mountains. There's no cell phone service. So we're praying, what do we do? How do we get there? Praise God that there are people whose jobs are to go after wanderers. That group had simply gotten distracted, cutting up and laughing, and the, the adult in the group was caught up in it, and they missed where they were supposed to turn to go down the mountain. But praise God, there's park rangers <laughs> who are driven by love to find those who wander and restore them to the right path. Church family, we've got to be people driven by the glory and love of our Lord and each other who when we see each other wander, we don't fall back in apathy, but in love we go after one another to restore each other to the right path. Father, we look to you. 
There's not a one of us in here who is above stumbling. And so, Lord, it's with great humility we need to take in and process this passage. It's also with courage we need to take this passage, Lord. We can't control when somebody wanders what their response will be. But how sad for somebody to wander, for a brother or sister in Christ to wander. And for none of us to love them enough to go after them. Jesus, you used that same word when you, say, when you, when you, when you said the parable. When, how many of you, when one sheep wanders, does not leave the 99 to go after that one sheep? Lord, may that be who we are as a church because we are living in a day where the enemy's lies are rampant. So Jesus, find us faithful to follow you, and as we follow you, find us faithful to go after and seek to rescue and turn back any of our brothers or sisters who wander. And Lord, if there are any brothers and sisters in this room who are wandering, may they be sensitive, Holy Spirit, to your grief, to your conviction, to may they be responsive to someone who would come and talk to them about it, that they would be restored to the joy and intimacy of right fellowship with you. And Jesus, if there's any in this room whose sins are uncovered because they've never come to faith in you and known your forgiveness. May today be the day. Jesus, we look to you, and it's in your name I pray.